So Pete, <laughs> how long would you like to live? You always look at me with that little grin when you're about well, to... Well, I know this is an odd question to ask somebody, but how long would you like how to live? How long would I... Well, you know what? I, you can ask this question. I think I know what you're getting at, but I would like to live forever. There's so many neat, interesting things happening. I don't want to... Like Aerosmith said, I don't want to miss a thing. Right? <laughs> but I know you're being realistic about this in yes. terms of how much longer of a mortal life would I like to live? I'd take another 50 years that would put me around 100, Nobody maybe wants to 60. wear out their welcome, yeah. right? No, I'm not... Uh, I'm not that guy. Um, there is a an aging researcher, scientist. His name's Aubrey de Grey. I interviewed him a few years back. Mm-hmm. He's been on 60 Minutes. And, you know, he's the guy generally that people talk to about this subject, about living forever, immortality, whatever it is. He's been fond of saying the first person that will live to be a thousand is alive right now. Yeah, I've heard that. Do you believe it? I don't know if I can believe it. Does he mean like he's taking human parts out of this person and is going to... His belief was, and again, give him credit, because this goes back probably a few decades, really, where he just thought the science would catch up to most of the things that deteriorate the human body, including telomeres and all this other stuff, and that ultimately we would figure these things out and live longer and potentially, quote unquote, live forever. I like I like the idea of that, but I've also remember back in the fifties they said we'd all have jetpacks and yes, flying cars. Right. So um, I'm not sure where I sit with this because it, it, you know it brings in a whole other you know it's not just about whether we would like to live forever or not age. It, it then brings into geopolitical questions about the population, whatever. I'm mm-hmm. not the person, obviously, to answer those questions, and with all due respect, yeah, neither, neither are you. <laughs> but we are lucky enough to be joined by somebody who's not only written a book specifically about this the issue of genetic engineering genetic modification called hacking darwin for those people that have seen the unnatural selection doc on netflix mm-hmm. right now this is a hot topic it's a front burner item yeah but it yeah. brings in questions about geopolitics about about tech about all these things that thankfully our guest today is an expert in and we welcome him to what if discussed jamie metzel welcome to what if discussed hi jamie Hi, guys. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. It's funny because this is this used to be, you know, what if is ultimately about hypotheticals, right? So you ask these yeah. big hypothetical yeah. questions, which are fun. They're fun to kind of entertain, often because they could never happen. They could never happen or they're a thousand years yeah. away. This is not the case. Uh, Hacking Darwin goes into this obviously pretty deeply as, as well and as comprehensively as maybe anybody has. And this is no longer sort of sci-fi. This is no longer 20 years, 100 years from now. It feels like this is DEFCON 4. What, I guess, let's start with that, Jamie. Where where, where did your research in, in Hacking Darwin bring you in terms of understanding the scale and the scope of this particular issue of genetic engineering? So there, there are two issues that, that you've mentioned. One is genetic engineering, and the second is how that affects aging. In genetic engineering, we are in the early stage of a revolution that's going to fundamentally transform our lives on so many different la- levels, starting with healthcare, but extending well beyond that. And as I write about in the book, the kind of the summary of the whole thing is that our one little species among the billions uh, that have ever lived. Um, we now have the increasing ability to read, write, and hack the code of life. And that just, that just changes everything. Uh, so the implications are just absolutely huge. And uh, there are some incredibly exciting potential manifestations of this, real manifestations now with things like gene therapies. And there are real dangers. Uh, and certainly for the, with the question that you guys raised 
about aging, it opens up uh, the possibility of hacking the process of aging itself. And the science is real. Um, as with everything, there's the science and the potential future trajectories, and we have to filter out the hype. But this is, it's a very real revolution and, and really exciting in lots of ways. Uh, Jamie, you say in uh, Hacking Darwin, you say, from this point onward, our mutation will not be random. It will be self-designed. From this point onward, our selection will not be natural. It will be self-directed. So after billions of years of Darwinian evolution, we can now choose how we evolve. Is this a fair assessment of the situation? Yeah. I mean, not only a fair assessment, it's a quote that I, that I wrote. So absolutely. I mean, that's, that is, uh, that's the point. I mean, we have gotten uh, from being single cell organisms to what we are today over 3.8 billion years through random mutation and natural selection. And now we are going to guide the mutation process. Uh, And that's, it's just, it's a fundamental shift in the mechanisms of evolution that's going to, again, touch our lives and and touch the lives of all future generations. Yes. I mean, this is, it's very difficult to A, articulate the significance of where we're at, Jamie. It's impossible, I would say, to overstate what this means with a variety of implications. But as it pertains to that sort of what if question about aging and not aging and Gattaca. I mean, we weren't going to get through this show without referencing the 1997 I was. Uh, classic. <laughs> Only because I haven't seen Uma it. Uma Thurman. Yeah, uh, but I mean, ultimately, that again was sci-fi. This idea of just this perfect people being developed because obviously we were able to CRISPR like genes and the idea of obviously link, living longer lives. This is no longer sci-fi, is it? Like what? What do you imagine is a, is a fair projection in maybe even years as to how this could alter life expectancy for human beings? So first, we need to go back a little bit. Uh, just a little over 100 years ago, average life expectancy in the United States was around 40. So over the last little more than a century, we've massively extended average human lifespan through things like healthcare and sanitation and workplace safety and other things. And now we're on the verge of being able to use incredible science to extend that winning streak a a little bit more. And it's not going to be one magical intervention that changes everything, but we're just going to continually chip away, continually do a a better job of extending health span, which is really the name of the game. Living longer on a ventilator isn't good for anything. And then the question is, well, how are we going to do it? And I, I write about this in, uh, in the book, um, but first we need to understand what aging is. And there have been some incre- incredible work and, and great progress in just understanding the basic mechanisms of aging. And there's a, even a debate raging about is aging one comprehensive thing or is it a bunch of, of different parts, uh, different systems within the human body that are aging at different rates, which is important because you don't want to kind of have an immortal ear and a, or immortal one kind of cell and a mortal other kind of cell because you'll just be equally, equally dead. So there's some really exciting science, though, about understanding, well, how can we basically shift the way our bodies function and the way our cells function from growth mode into repair mode? How do we put ourselves into kind of the equivalent of screensaver with the metabolism 
uh, like these uh, quahog clams um, that can live for 500 or, or, or more years. And we have that, that ability built into our system, and that's what a lot of drugs uh, that people talk about, like uh, metformin and rapamycin and, and other things are doing, which is just kind of getting our body back into repair mode. Um, there's a lot of really exciting work about sequencing, genome sequencing, people who uh, live into their hundreds to see, which is the case, are there genetic differences between those kinds of people and everybody else? And genes instruct cells to make proteins. So what are their genes instructing their cells to do? And can we mimic those kinds of outcomes for, uh, for everybody else? Again, it's not going to be overnight. It's not going to be magic, but it's going to be just chipping away uh, at, the, uh, at the underlying um, uh, biology of aging uh, to extend people's health spans. It, it's, it rubs some people the wrong way. Um, let me play devil's advocate here and, and say that science is supposed to help us find ways to improve our lives. So to a large extent, I would imagine this means to alleviate suffering. Um, if we've arrived at a point where we're able to design an improved future for our offspring, why wouldn't we do it? Yeah, so, well, I think we should. And, and certainly um, with aging, if I said, uh, should we invest in the science of aging to help people live healthier, longer lives. Maybe some people would say yes, and some people would say no. But if I said, should we invest in fighting cancer or dementia or heart disease, probably everybody would say yes. Hmm. But all three of those and so many other diseases are correlating with aging and fighting each manifestation of aging is like playing whack-a-mole. If one thing doesn't get you, the other thing will. And so it certainly makes sense, at least to me, that we should try to address the underlying biology of aging. So in my mind, it's a no-brainer. Um, then there's the second question of what people call designer babies and superhumans, and those are all scary words to a lot of people. But we are superhumans. Uh, we all have these incredible interventions, whether it's our our mothers taking folic acid, um, whether it's being vaccinated, whether it's our glasses, whether the healthcare that allows us to overcome what would in the past have been um, deadly diseases or, uh, or experiences. And we're going to want that for our children. Nobody's going to want to have a child who dies of some kind of deadly genetic disorder. And over time, we're going to get comfortable first with the idea uh, of using in vitro fertilization and embryo selection just to make sure that we have the healthiest children possible. And then uh, making interventions to the pre-implanted embryos of future, uh, of future children, uh, maybe to address harms or maybe over time to create some kinds of benefits. And this is all scary stuff. And it should be scary stuff because this is a very, very early stage of these uh, of these technologies um, and but just like we shouldn't just jump headlong into this genetically engineered future it would also in my view be a mistake uh, to say we aren't going to use these very powerful technologies to continue the evolution of our of our species because we haven't been in this form forever we've only had this for, this form as homo sapiens around 300,000 years this was never going to be an endpoint in our evolutionary journey and it is exactly that. It yeah. is a evolutionary uh, leap that we're talking about here. You, again, cannot overstate the amount of 
sort of rabbit holes to go down here. Uh, and we're going to continue with Jamie talking about the ethical dilemma again, superhumans, the divide, the economic disparity issue, yeah. some other things, because again, we could go on forever, but there's plenty more about genetic engineering, genetic modification. What if you never aged, et cetera. And we'll have that more on the extended version. Jamie, uh, you've got a lot going on. Where uh, can people best keep up with you? Uh, that's a great question. Thank you. You can go to my website, jamiemetzel.com. If you want to learn more about hacking Darwin or actually join the conversation on the future of human genetic engineering, you can go to hackingdarwin.com. And if you'd like to learn about uh, the movement that I founded that's now people in 115 countries working together to build a better world, I invite everyone to go to oneshared.world. Perfect. Thank you. Like we said, we will have more with Jamie Metzl, author of the book Hacking Darwin in the extended audio version of What If Discussed. If you're watching on YouTube, just click the link below you to get the full extended audio podcast of What If You Never Aged. If you're already listening to us on the audio podcast, we'll be back just after the break. And if you can't join us on the other side, well, you're lost. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time on What If Discussed. Welcome back to What If Discussed. We are with the New York Times bestselling author, novelist, technology and healthcare futurist, geopolitics expert, a real underachiever, apparently. Uh, <laughs> a few things and going yes, on. on the side, he's a serious endurance athlete. Yeah, well, and of course. Yeah. Yes, obviously, yeah. as of course, Peter and I are as well. <laughs> um, Jamie, again, it's 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 an incredible sort of body of work. But interestingly enough, it's all sort of coming together to almost you know, serve, let's say, that sort of next part of your life that's going to sort of leverage all that experience and really help us all understand and take on these really big, crazy issues that we're faced with. There's no shortage of them. But again, I don't feel that this particular issue of gene, you know, genetic modification, uh, genetic engineering has been given its sort of proportionate level of coverage, maybe. I don't know if that's just me. It's just not something I don't think people realize is like right around the corner. Um, there's so many positive things here. So it's almost impossible to deny. Again, you get people, you know, getting their sight back, people who couldn't walk. You're talking about potentially maybe getting rid of malaria in, in parts of the world. But then there are always those other issues and a lot of people feel uneasy. I'm not sure where I where I land, but there's something. How do you feel in your gut about this? So first, um, I totally agree with you. This is such a massive story for each of us and for all of us. And I'm certainly talking about it a lot. I'm happy to be here talking about it with you guys. But it's not getting the level of attention that's commensurate with just how huge this is for our for our species, and I'm I'm trying to change that, um, but I, I just I I don't get it. And this revolution, <laughs> it's huge. It 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 really changes everything, and and it's it's around the corner. Um, but that doesn't mean it's fully realized around the corner. I mean, people are imagining that, that in a few years we're going to be making babies just like when you go to the Build-A-Bear workshop in the, in the mall. <laughs> we used to, and it's, it's not that. Um, but what it is is <laughs> that's, that's that we have it. Disappointed yeah, exactly. Us. Some people would want that. Um, but it's that we have this ability to read, write, and hack the code of life. Uh, and because 
all of life is connected. It all emerges from that uh, that same spark of uh, of life, whatever it was, three point eight billion years years ago. So we know how much play there is that's built into biology because everything is always changing, and we were already going to be always changing just because of 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 what we are. But now we're going to be able to drive that process forward in a way that's going to fundamentally transform not just our healthcare, but our healthcare and really every other aspect of our lives. I was talking to Richard about this before we started the podcast was, uh, you know, in terms of how it's going to change the future of humanity, you know, we kind of went through the Stone Age, the Iron Age, the Bronze Age. This seems like the genetic age. Like this is going to be something that changes the entire future of humans and all living creatures on the world, on the planet. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, it's it, that that all of those ages that you have described are about technologies that were fundamentally so transformative that they defined just a, a new era. And we think about the genetics age, it's not just the genetics age, because what we're experiencing is a super convergence of different technologies that are all mm. empowering and inspiring and speeding up each other. So the genetics revolution in many ways is just joined at the hip with the AI, computer science, machine learning, because we would have had no way of understanding the complexity of our biology without these tools. It's way beyond the capacity of our, of our brains alone. And so we're going to see this, it's the, the, the human evolution sped up aligned with artificial intelligence. And it's going to be over time very difficult to draw the boundary between mm. where we end and our technologies begin. One way that uh, there's going to be boundaries drawn, I think uh, you'll probably agree, is that uh, is in the money um, area. The economic disparity is not a small factor here. Well, uh, obviously, everybody knows we live in a world of haves and have nots and and the, the divide is getting greater, not uh, not better. Um, it's getting worse. So what happens to that gap when you create a world of superhumans? Um, and then we're left with some just regular old humans who didn't get a chance to become superhuman. Sounds like a story for another what if, but it also sounds like a subject for your next book. Um, is it is this going to be a possibility? Are there or will there be two races of people? Well, first, let's just be clear: we are the superhumans. We are we outcompeted the Neanderthals. Uh, the people who are alive today, our ancestors were the ones who didn't starve to death when pretty much everybody else was uh, was starving to death. Mm. Um, we're the ones who are inoculated, so we shouldn't we shouldn't deceive ourselves into thinking, oh, we're just um, these these regular people, and the superhumans are coming. We are superhumans, and that is why we're here. And as we move forward, we are going to have access to additional capabilities, additional uh, capabilities to do things um, like what our vaccines are already doing to us, which is making us just able to live um, safer, healthier lives. But rather than doing it through a vaccine, we may and we will uh, do it through some type of uh, genetic or molecular level uh, interventions. And that's going to be across the board. And we are going to develop additional capabilities. I mean, when I travel around, I remember a decade ago, I was in Bangladesh um, and I was in this very poor village and I had my smartphone and they didn't. And these people were just as smart or smarter than I was, but I had a level of access 
that made me a relative superhuman, at least in terms of access uh, to, to, to information. And so I, I know that we, when we use that word superhuman, we're kind of imagining these gods, but in a way we are those gods. And the, the question for us is how do we use this technology wisely and how do we use it wisely in ways that don't divide populations the way that's, ha- that's completely happened in the past. I mean, mm-hmm. when Europe had faster technological advancement than other countries in the world, they used that to colonize uh, and kill people all around the world. I mean, that was that, that divide. If we don't want that, we just need to make sure that our most sacred values guide the application of our most powerful technologies. And we'd be remiss if we didn't mention CRISPR, by the way, which we unbelievably haven't by now. And uh, so before I forget that, how do you when somebody asks you, Jamie, at a at a party or at a conference, you know, elevator pitch, explain to me what CRISPR is. What do you tell them? Okay, it's it's relatively uh, easy. I won't even go into the science. Um, uh, It's an ability um, to to cut and paste like on Microsoft Word, the genome. Uh, the genome is the source code of life, um, and you can cut it to turn off a gene. You can add genetic material, and that is what allows us to, to rewrite genetic code. Having said that, um, genetic code is incredibly complex, and so people shouldn't imagine that we can just rewrite everything. We're in the beginning of the genome editing revolution, but it's moving really quickly. And so the way I describe it is, so Jennifer Doudna, who just won the Nobel Prize for the development of, of CRISPR, her famous paper was in 2016, I mean, I'm sorry, 2012, which was outlining how CRISPR could be used to edit a cell, not a human cell, a cell. Six years later, in 2018, the world's first genome-edited human CRISPR babies are born. Six years from an academic article about editing a cell to the first genome-edited humans. It's funny that you uh, you reference Microsoft Word because I think uh, a license for Microsoft Word probably costs you know a hundred times more than what uh, uh, the CRISPR technology costs. It's very it's very inexpensive, is it not? Yeah, well, it, it's not just the cost. So. I mentioned Jennifer Doudna. She and I spoke about a year and a half ago together on a panel at the World Science Festival here where I am in New York. And this was before her Nobel, but in my remarks, I said, um, if you develop the CRISPR-Cas9 genome editing system, you win the Nobel Prize, as Jennifer surely will. But if you apply it to edit a living cell, Hmm. you only get an A in your high school biology class. Hmm. And after the talk, this woman came up to me and said, hey, I didn't want to contradict you, but I am a high school biology teacher and applying (laughs) CRISPR to edit a living cell only gets you a B. To get an A, you have to do do more. And so this stuff, it's it's fast, it's, uh, it's cheap it's relatively easy. I mean, the average high school kid can't build a nuclear bomb. Um, Maybe they can't set up their own fertility clinic, um, but they can edit a living cell. Well, I, tr- I, mean, I tried that fertility clinic thing, setting one of those up in uh, yeah, yeah. different type, different it's type DIY. Of clinic. <laughs> yes, a DIY. Uh. Um, it's a perfect segue to you know the sort of the next area of concern. And again, we're very lucky to have somebody with such a diverse 
background in so many areas because you can speak with with real insight to regulation, right? You've been in government, you understand that aspect of it as well. You just mentioned probably maybe the the biggest, let's say, front burner issue for people, and certainly as it was addressed in the in the documentary series on natural selection, the fact that any joker essentially can order it and start doing stuff at home DIY. And now you have, you know, people starting to ponder, how do you regulate this? And A, how do you make sure that this isn't all just the purview of big pharma? And and then again, potentially getting these bigger price tags attached to things and creating, as Peter was saying, this inequality. But then also not having, you know, Joe in his basement uh, inviting his friends over for uh, an X-Men party and, and party. pumping them full of... <laughs> Whatever, like you know what I mean. This is not. I'm I'm being a bit facetious, but this is a serious Possible. issue. It really is, and so th- there are there are two ends of the spectrum, both of which are wrong. Uh, there's one end of the spectrum, the people who say, well, this is everyone should have the right to use these technologies, however however they see fit. Uh, government has no role in in interfering uh, with people's free expression. That's wrong. Uh, the other end of the of the uh, spectrum are people who say this is so scary. Uh, we can imagine terrible scenarios where these technologies could be abused. Uh, these technologies have to be stopped now. That's wrong. Uh, and the reason why it's wrong to do everything is that we're talking about the future of life, and we are all stakeholders in the future of life. And that's why we come together in societies and have governments to try to help us make these these wise decisions about how technologies should or shouldn't be used. And the reason why it's wrong to say, well, let's just stop it now because these technologies could be abused is because most of the story is about incredible promise. Our ability uh, to to prevent or treat terrible, deadly disorders to perhaps enhance human capabilities in ways that we may need. I mean, we may, may not be able to survive with the genetics that we have um, if, the, if the planet gets warmer or we have to live in space or, or, or anything else. So we need to find that way of balancing the risks and the benefits. And we have to do that through thoughtful regulation. Well, I mean, it's also a good extension of this conversation too to get to why are we having this discussion as to how to regulate what should be done the has and have nots all these you know very real and pertinent discussions and i agree with you that the pros outweigh the cons one of the things though that always sort of surprises me whether it's ai or uh, gene modification crispr etc what we're talking about is that we we they seem to happen regardless and inevitably even though many people feel that we haven't actually come to a consensus on not how we should do it, but whether we should do it. How can, how can we improve that process? Well, so there's a, there's a built-in problem. Uh, and the problem is you can't regulate something that doesn't exist. And mm. so um, the science in always takes the lead because that's what creates the possibility. I mean, you, I also write science fiction, but nobody is having regulatory conversations based on science fiction. Something has to exist. And Mm. the problem that we face is that the science is advancing exponentially. It's moving forward so quickly um, that there's a gap between the science and our societal ability to think about and, and figure out how best the science should be used, both on a popular level 
and on, on a regulatory level. And so I think the, the challenge is how do we make that gap smaller? And one of the ways that I think we have to do that um, is by recognizing that governance happens on all levels. Um, and this can't be that we're, we're waiting on a few smart people in the science community or in government to tell us what to do because they don't know, none of us know. Um, but mm. what we need is to educate people, to engage people so that we can all be part of weighing the pros and cons. And at least there's a quicker process for translating um, what becomes a, a feeling that turns into a norm uh, and then a standard and then, and then a, a, a regulation. But it's, it's really, really tricky because the science is moving quickly. And as you mentioned, there are huge ethical issues and whether it's issues of equity, issues of diversity, um, they're just really, really big and important issues. Everybody's got, uh, you know, an idea of what they would like to to do to themselves if this was completely legal and if it was uh, that easy and if you could do it to a 40-year-old person. But, Jamie, what uh, if you got to write your own code for uh, for a CRISPR experiment on yourself, what would you uh, change or add or eliminate from yourself? Yeah, so um, once we sequence everybody, um, we'll all realize that we're all ticking time bombs. Uh, everybody has a pre-existing condition for something. Wow. And so because in the early days of, uh, of human genome editing, and we're in the pre-early days now where there's some what's called somatic genome editing, and there have been these, these first at least three known examples of germline heritable editing. So in the early days when these interventions are relatively small, if I had a, had a magic wand, I certainly would want to kind of do a scan of myself and say, well, do I have any ticking time bombs mm. that are available and, and uh, that are there? And then secondly, there's just this issue of time. I, I agree with what, with what you said earlier. Um, we all want more time so we can have more innovations, spread more love, write more poems, do yeah. play more foosball, whatever it is that we, that we, yeah. that we love to do. And so I certainly um, would want to kind of buy as much healthy time as I, uh, as I possibly can. But I think we could go on forever. And, and there's just so many things that we would want. And wanting those things is part of what makes us human. This kind of striving, it's, it's not some kind of, in my view, some kind of alien thought. It's at the core of, of why we are who we are, how we became the species uh, that we are. And, and I, my feeling is I certainly embrace it, but that doesn't mean without any hesitation, reservation, recognition, that there, there's some really complex issues here. Yeah, no doubt. But, you know, I, I think, again, well said, well articulated, and maybe as an extension of, of what we're wondering as to, you know, how does this sort of brave new world adapt to being able to, you know, to keep up with, you know, pace and, and, and policy for science and tech that's just obviously leapfrogging it at every stage. Well, maybe some organizations that can be created outside of government that can open up the discussion and potentially act as 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 a data gathering conversation, information gathering place that can help us maybe collaborate, co-create this humanity 2.0 we're talking yeah. about. But where would fund where would somebody find something like that? And the answer again today is with Jamie Metzl. Um, <laughs> well, I want to be a one stop shop. <laughs> yeah, well, but I mean, that's I mean, really, I think we 
we do crave that. It is a fractured world, but I think there, there are some tents that need to be created that bring more people in so we can have these ongoing discussions. What is your vision for the organization that you've created and what is it? Yeah. So first I just want to say, you said the magic words, co-create. Um, we now have a hundred years ago, uh, we had 20% of the world was literate. Now we have 85% literate uh, uh, literacy. We're all connected through these networks. We actually have the ability to co-create our, our future. And that doesn't mean that everybody agrees, has to agree with 100%, uh, 100% on everything. But we have to find a way of, uh, of coming together. One of the reasons that we can't, we have had a, such a hard time solving these issues, like how do we regulate these, these life-changing revolutionary technologies or climate change, or how do we address pandemics or proliferating weapons of mass destruction, is that our species has very rapidly in historic terms gone from a bunch of small bands of roving nomads into this global species with the, the power, as we've been discussing, to fundamentally um, change or even end all of life on Earth. But while we have a global reach, we don't have a global consciousness uh, and we don't have a global politics. We don't really have a way of coming together to find, uh, to find common ground and to solve these big common global problems. And so the organization that I've found called One Shared World, OneShared.World, um, is designed to address what's essentially this global collective action problem. Uh, we are a community of people in 115 uh, different countries who are working together. We together drafted a declaration of interdependence. It's been translated into 19 languages. We have all kinds of really exciting education materials. We, we um, launched a campaign um, calling on G20 leaders uh, to ensure that everyone on earth has access to safe water, basic sanitation and hygiene and essential pandemic protection. And we were actually totally shocked and thrilled uh, that a, a good deal of our language um, uh, was in the final uh, uh, communique of the G20 leaders from Riyadh in, in November 2020. And I got a note from actually the Saudi government um, minutes after that was released, letting us know that our, our language had been incorporated. So we have to come together to try to find this common ground to, again, using your words, to co-create our future. Because if we do, we have this unbelievable promise of a better future that it, it could just be awesome. And if we don't, we could really screw things up. That's well said. And to the point, uh, obviously, we could go on forever. But I mean, I think we, we, we covered a lot of what is, again, a very complex subject, but also I think hopefully provided a surface a service for people who are not only wondering concerned but just maybe surface level understandings of of mm -hmm. something that's going to be such a big part of the world going I, forward i think allayed some fears too like, yeah I, I i think so i mean look it's the old thing like everything can be you know you could make the argument about tech you could make it about anything that depending on the person there's always going to be people that can misuse something you try to create some ways that that doesn't happen but you try to allow the the pros to especially if they if they far outweigh the cons to be able to continue to exist and i think at this point we agree with that uh jamie great work and not just obviously today with us but everything that you've done to this point and going forward continued success with everything that you're doing. And uh, we really thank you for taking the time to join us on What If Discussed. Yep, thank you. Thank you, guys. It's really been my pleasure. Wow, there's a guy that, I don't know, for me, 
should be on the ticket in 28, maybe. For president. President. I mean, this is. What this, about uh, the, the, the. What, the, the Smeech and Garner <laughs> ticket? <laughs> was, that, was that a real possibility? I'm going to guess uh, he's not Republican then because. No. That, that ticket's probably already been set in stone. Probably, probably Junior and, and Ivanka or something, which is a, definitely a story for another what if. Wow, there's a what if video that would go viral. <laughs> um, interesting as we're talking about politics, because I remember an interview with Barack Obama in, you know, one of those first hundred days in office interviews that they do. And it was, I believe, with Anderson Cooper or somebody like that. And Anderson Cooper was going through this sort of, you know, pretty, pretty pedestrian question. What was the thing that, you know, surprised you the most about the first hundred days of being the president? And, you know, expecting some sort of, remember, they were coming out of 2008 financial crisis. Right. There was, you know, problems, you know, Middle East, whatever. You're expecting an answer like that. And it was interesting because you saw... This moment where it seemed like almost Barack Obama had been caught off guard by the question. And he answered so honestly. And before almost Cooper was finished the question, he just said, the speed. And he go, and Cooper's like, kind of, what do you mean? He goes, the speed. He goes, that's been the biggest surprise. And he kind of started to claw it back mm. to just like he didn't want to make it sound like he was overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. But what he was saying is he, he goes, you just realized that the, that's, that's the pace that change happens now especially in government, which is known for taking a long time to make. He goes, it's just you just think you've you've identified a problem. And if there's already this going on over here, it's finished. And as as Jamie's talking about what we have that we don't have an answer for, really, as he sort of outlined, is that science slash technology, which are you could argue they're the same thing. Tech comes from science. They're so fast now that they they leapfrog our ability to sort of get in front. Okay, well, we're going to make a decision on that. It's going to take us a year. We're going to have some meetings. No, we're already doing it. It's happening. Yeah. And so how do you. Nobody can regulate the Internet. Uber, the Internet, uh, you know, my cell phone. But could you imagine having these things and keeping technology like this on the shelf no. and saying, sorry, you're not allowed to use it until we spend the next six months debating about this. Meanwhile, it's just sitting there. People are dying, maybe yeah. unnecessarily. Like this is as tough a thing that or I even the ethics imagine. of it. If you just decided this is ethically un- not right, we should not be doing something like this. The technology exists. So now it's going to sit on the table for you. You hope forever if you're yeah. if you're regulating against it. But it, now it falls. Now's when it falls into the hands of uh, oh the uh, of the island of Doctor Moreau. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and not to, no, but seriously, there's no. Well, look what happened. He was talking about it. It's in the documentary on natural selection. As it was being debated in North America, it happened in China. Buddy was like, "Yeah, we're doing it." Yeah, you you should have saw the reaction. Even uh, Doudness, like she was asked about it after the fact. She said this is unconscionable. But as it was again, sort of being debated in North American Western circles, other parts of the world were like, "No, no, we're we're going forward with designer babies." So that's mm-hmm. you know, it speaks to something that that Jamie talked about at the end is universal government decision making. At what point do you require more of that to be able to say, because you can't have one part of the world developing super soldiers. You need a universal government. You can't have. Which is not a popular subject when you talk about people who have trepidations about that. But it's the ultimate privilege issue in some ways, because I could sit here and say this is unethical, people playing God, whatever I might want to say, even the, the, the negatives that could happen. And then some parent of, uh, of a child who's got 
got a spinal issue or they can't see or yeah. whatever. And they're like, well, easy for you to say. Like my my yeah. son or daughter is suffering and could be helped immediately. And or there's people where we could eliminate or eliminate, you know, malaria, let's say in a country in Africa, which could save whatever. And they're going to say, well, easy for you to say, Richard, if we have that technology that could help save millions of lives, how who are you to say it's unethical? Yeah. Well, and that's happening too. He mentioned, uh, you know, he would want to get scanned for any sort of uh, yes. life terminating disease. I had a friend, uh, her parents and, and her entire bloodline have a debilitating disease um, that is passed on genetically to everyone that is to 90% of the people who are born. She was able to you know, uh, have embryos taken and determine which ones wow. would have this disease and which ones wouldn't and, uh, and select the embryo that wouldn't. Uh, and now she's effectively eliminated, eliminated that disease from her entire, uh, the rest of her bloodline. So incredible. Like who would I be to say that you can't do that because, and like he says, we're already doing it. Yeah. We've already got pregnant mothers taking folic acid to make their baby's brain smaller. You know, mm -hmm. we've already, we're already taking vaccines to prevent disease. Like we are the superhumans and we're just on that course of continuing to be superhumans. This is how we evolve. Yeah. This is tough, man. There's ethics along the way yeah, yeah, yeah. that are difficult. But it's there was a there's something that doesn't get discussed a lot today. But um, eugenics was the first form of this term. Right. This is why people get scared off and because of eugenics and, and, because and, of and eugenics. People forget, like they associate it with Nazi Germany in the end, because that's where yeah. it got actually applied. And a lot of it were, was was actually in practical application of sterilization and other things. But. People don't remember historically that that had also happened. Sterilization, very specifically uh, prisoners of other people in the U.S., in mm -hmm. the U.K., around the world at this time in the I don't know, 20s, 30s, let's say 30s, 40s, whatever it was. Eugenics was heralded as the is as everything we use today. Genetic revolution, a revolution in how we're going to go forward. Now, you could argue that this crazy idea that they were applying it to people without their consent that's obviously crazy yeah but where it got it you know it the legacy of that particular period reminded us that yes you got to be diligent about how you balance out the pros with the cons mm -hmm. and there's always going to be cons and i agree you don't just stop everything because there's a few people that are going to misuse it but in this case we're at this sci-fi level now. It's just so it feels so crazy that you're going to wake up one day and you're going to, you know, you're going to get a, a tweet about some race of superhumans. This is why people get upset is because they're afraid of somebody using the technology to create a master race. Yeah. They're afraid of using this in the way that Hitler wanted to use eugenics. Yes. It's, but it doesn't have to be that. I mean, maybe it could be that way. Mm -hmm. Maybe if you got your back turned, maybe some strange country and another yeah, part of the world. continent <laughs> part of the world decides to take this. And the next thing you know, you go visit there and there's this race of like uh, yeah. nine foot tall, blonde haired, blue eyed, yeah. strong men that I don't know, shoot bullets out of their <laughs> nose. I yeah, don't know. That's well, I mean, it's 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 again, it's why you have these conversations, because there's 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 a there's no definitive right answer. There's there's only complexity. There's only nuance. And you try to be able to figure out the best way to to go forward. And uh, again, with somebody like Jamie Metzl, who had 
so much different experience on the science side, but also the political side. I think we did our best to be able to put this into perspective, but there's still there's a lot left to do in this area of of genetic manipulation and and the what if you didn't age. I would say so. And if anybody wants more information about it, uh, go to uh, jamiemetzel.com. Yeah. Or uh, oneshared.world. And Hacking Darwin, great book. And Hacking, yeah, amazing book. Well, thanks again to Jamie Metzl for joining us on What If Discussed today. If you want more What If, well, sign up for the What If Explorers Club newsletter for tons of cool science stuff. Find out what we're doing behind the scenes. You know, one thing, Richard, we just finished working on was our first ever book. Yes, the What If uh, 100. The What If 100. This is your must-have encyclopedia of imaginations. A beautiful collection of 100 of your favorite scenarios, along with amazing artwork, more interesting facts. It's all on good old, beautiful print and paper. Mm-hmm. A fantastic coffee table type uh, hardcover book. That Yeah, not a stocking stuffer because it's a heavy one. I've felt it. But <laughs> it's definitely a under the tree for maybe uh, the Smeechin family. Well, I'll tell you exactly how it works right now is right now we're taking orders. Yeah. Well, you can go to, uh, say, whatifshow.com uh, into our What If store and you'll see a copy of it there and you place your order now and once we've amassed the orders then we will print the books and ship it not going to arrive in time for christmas but you can get a digital copy you order the hardcover you get a free digital copy oh so cool so it's like yeah. a little like little placeholder and you get the yeah, book placeholder after. and yeah you will get the book after and you can get uh, if you just want the digital copy you can order the digital copy and get it uh, right this second if the foreword like. written by friend of uh, what if discussed friend of the show Dr. Michio Kaku. Yeah. Which is, which is really cool because again, this is, you know, this is somebody at this sort of the Mount Rushmore of science communication, which again, I don't know. Did, if what if is on that Mount Rushmore, is that your face in the end? Like who gets up? There? <laughs> that, that is a story for another what if. A bit of a debate, but let's just say the big if. Would the, it the ever be? be there. Yeah, he wrote a very nice forward, very complimentary. And uh, you can read it when you buy the book. You go to whatifshow.com. That's it for today. On behalf of Richard Garner, we'll, I want to say, see you next time, but it's we will speak to you next time or we'll... Talk at you next time. We'll discuss. We'll discuss more next time on What If Discussed.